We're in Joel 1 and 2. And uh, before we jump in, I just want to say that Joel seems to come to us from a different world. Uh, first thing, just practically, uh, it comes to us from a world uh, where everyone is a farmer. Well, almost everyone. So uh, your occupation uh, primarily would be making the things in your backyard continue to grow and not die. Which if it was my, my, my occupation, I'd be in trouble. But uh, if the things in your backyard did not grow, uh, you and your family did not survive. That was kind of life in an agricultural culture. That's the culture we're, uh, we're in, and it's going to be real relevant because uh, in Joel's day, a plague of locusts has wiped out all of the crops. So bad news. But uh, Joel really comes to us from a different world in the way it speaks about this national disaster. Um, in our day... We have our own language about national disaster. Uh, but Joel, Joel says that God has sent this and that he is speaking through it. He has something particular to say to his people through this national disaster. That sounds like it is from another world. However, if you've ever wondered what is up with Category 5 hurricanes wiping out entire islands or someone stealing your ID online and wiping out all your bank accounts, um, this is a text that is going to give us not the whole picture, but a very important piece of the picture. So uh, one final thing, this is important. Uh, we're going to read from verse 1 all the way to chapter 2, verse 17. I encourage you guys to follow along. But in chapter 1, there is a plague of locusts described as an army. In chapter 2, there is an army described as locusts. It's really interesting. Uh, but what Joel's up to here is he's, he's saying that the locusts are pointing to something worse that's coming. So let's read, and uh, we'll dive in. Here we go, Joel 1 and all the way to 2.17. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Hear this, you elders, give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it, and let your children tell their children, and their children to another generation. What the coating locust, the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. What the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. Awake, you drunkards, and weep and wail, you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are lion's teeth, and it has the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. Lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. The grain offering and drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn, the ministers of the Lord. The fields are destroyed. The, the ground mourns because the grain is destroyed. The wine dries up. The oil languishes. Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil. Wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field has perished. The vine dries up. The fig tree languishes. Pomegranate, palm, apple, and all the trees of the field are dried up. And gladness dries up from the children of man. Put on sackcloth and lament, O priest. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Go in, pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God. Because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God. And cry out to the Lord. Alas for the day. For the day of the Lord is near. As destruction from the Almighty it comes. Is not the food cut off from before our eyes, joy and gladness from the house of our God? The seed shrivels under the pods, the storehouses are desolate, the granaries are torn down because the grain is dried up. 
how the beasts groan. The herds of the cattle are perplexed because there's no pasture for them. Even the flocks of sheep suffer. To you, O Lord, I call. For fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness, and the flame has burned all the trees of the field. Even the beasts of the field pant for you because the water brooks are dried up, and fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm for my holy, on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. For the day of the Lord is coming, it is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. Their like has never been seen or has never been before, nor will again after them through all through the years of all generations. Fire devours devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like war horses they run, as with the rumbling of chariots they leap upon the tops of the mountains, like the crackling of a flame of fire devouring the stubble, like a powerful army drawn up for battle. Before them the peoples are in anguish, all faces grow pale, like warriors they charge, like soldiers they scale the wall. They march each on his way, they do not swerve from their paths. They do not jostle one another, each marches in his path. They burst through the weapons and are not halted. They leap upon the city, they run up the walls, they climb up into houses, they enter through the windows like a thief. The earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble. The sun and moon are darkened and like, and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. For he who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, fasting, weeping, and mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Turn to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, even nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room in the bride or chamber. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priest and minister of the Lord weep and say, Spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the people, Where is their God? Let's pray. Now, Lord, as we have just read uh, this long and uh, difficult passage, we pray uh, that you would give us wisdom and insight and speak very clearly into our lives through it. Just pray for the help of the Spirit to come. In Jesus' name. So, um, one of the one of the godliest and friendliest men I have ever known looked at me in the eye and said earnestly, is this something I need to pray about for you? Or do I need to get some guys, take you out back, and get some sense of you? I had just uh, confessed a struggle uh, to this friend of mine. Really, it was sin, a really dangerous kind of sin, actually. Uh, but you know how it is with the sins you don't, you're kind of casual about, right? You, uh, you frame it in a way like it's something that's happening to you and not something you're doing. Like, my coworkers make me so angry, you know? Or, you know, I can't, when I go to the beach, I really struggle. I'm just saying. Not like it's something you are actively a part of. And that's what I was doing. 
Um, you guys have all been in a small group where our time of confessing sin turns into patting each other on the back that, oh, we all just struggle with this, right? My friend uh, loved me enough to not let me get away with this foolishness and his uh, loving verbal punch in the face. I think an earnest threat against my physical livelihood was exactly what I needed to see my sin for what it was. To say, oh my goodness. This, one of the nicest guys I know is threatening my physical livelihood. This is serious. I need to deal with this. God was ministering to me uh, through that little, that little threat. And uh, I repented and it was good. And I even think that if I would have been stubborn and he would have followed through and taken some guys and brought me out back and kicked some sense into me, I think that would have been a loving thing to do. Proverbs uh, 27.6 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Now you might think, how could a physical beating ever be loving? Um, I think it's because sin is blinding and it le- an unrepentant sin leads to destruction. Um, sin is one of those things that when you're in it, you're blind to it. It carries with it this mechanism of self-deception. Um, sin's the kind of thing that like in Genesis 4, when you have just murdered your brother, God confronts you about it, and with blood still white on your hands, you say, am I my brother's keeper? Yeah. That's what sin does. That's the attitude in our hearts about it. And uh, sometimes we are so sluggish about the issues in our life, and we're so blind to them, and we're so unwilling to let go of our pet sins, sometimes we need serious threats to help us wake up. And uh, in Joel chapter 1, 2, 17, we see that God loves his people so much that he has such a, a merciful and gracious bent towards them that he desires so much for their good that he is willing to wake them up when they are sluggish in their sins, when they are so blinded by them they cannot even make the connection between all their food is gone and moral issues in their lives. So we'll see him speak. God will say in Joel 1 that our judgment days, our days that are hard and evil, are meant to point us to judgment day and to help us to repent. So look up. In chapter 1, we see a shocking truth that terrible things that happen in the world and even terrible things that happen to God's people, God uses them as previews of the one terrible thing coming to those on the earth, Judgment Day. Judgment Days, lowercase j, point to Judgment Day. Um, And when we see them, from the big things to the small things, we should respond with repentance. Let me show you guys this. Uh, Verse 4 calls God's people to see the horror of the locusts. Chapter 1, verse 4, sorry. He says, what the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping oak locust has eaten. What the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. In other words, there is no more food. There's nothing. It's all gone. And of course, that means there's nothing to eat. So we're hungry. But in verse 9, it gets even worse. Verse 9 says, this is chapter 1, verse 9. Uh, the grain and drink offerings are cut off from the house of the Lord. These were offerings of uh, grain and wine that were meant to be offered to God uh, to keep the relationship with Israel fresh. 
keep his favor upon them. And with no food, it's impossible. There's some divine judgment going on here. Uh, verses 2, 5, and 11 all call different people to pay attention to this. Uh, chapter, uh, verse 2, hear this, you elders. Listen. Verse 5 is really ironic. Awake, you drunkards, and weep. Drunkards are the people least likely to be aware of something bad happening, right? But they're going to be most effective because the crops of wine are going to be gone. Uh, verse 11 is a call to pro probably the general population because most people in that day were tillers of the soil and vine dressers. It's a call to them to see what's happened and to mourn. Verse 12 kind of summarizes all of the crops have dried up and joy and gladness has dried up from our hearts. Now, I, was, uh, I read an article about three or four months ago uh, back when there was a lot of hype and panic about North Korea getting nuclear weapons. And uh, this, uh, this article is very much an article of hype and panic. But um, it was a little mind experiment of what would happen if North Korea successfully got a nuclear missile and detonated it above the U.S. atmosphere and caused a massive blackout um, throughout the United States. It's called an electromagnetic pulse strike if you're in interested in those kind of things. However, uh, it is theoretically possible. Um, but uh, the part of this article that was shocking was uh, he began to describe what would happen tomorrow if the entire U.S. power grid was knocked out. And uh, here are the things that he described. Well, he says, first of all, because all of our, almost all of our uh, currency transactions are require power, right, that there's no more buying stuff. Uh, there's no more going to the store to Harris Teeter and like swiping your debit card. He also said there wouldn't be anything at Harris Teeter. But you guys know, this is crazy, okay? Without deliveries, grocery stores run out of food in three days. Again, we probably experienced that before the ice storm, right? Before, uh, before you know, right, right? Three days, it's, it's empty, okay? So, so if this happened in this crazy scenario, all right, whatever you have in your, your fridge is gonna last you for two or three days. And what, what, what you have to live on is now in your pantry until the entire US power grid is restored. Can you imagine the chaos? I mean, the collective panic uh, that is what a locust plague would have been like for someone in Joel's day. There is no food. There's nothing. How are we going to survive? Here's the crazy thing. You would think that with an empty belly and no food around, you would not need a wake-up call from God's prophet, right? You don't need someone to tell you to, to, to pay attention and to see the locusts. You would see them. And the idea here is the fact that this community needs a wake-up call is indicative that they are so blinded to their sins. They are so sluggish in them. That they need someone to help them even see the connection. Even starving to death won't wake them up. And so God kindly tells them what this is all about. Uh, notice uh, where have these locusts come from. Verse 15 tells us, Alas for the day, the day of the Lord is near, and as destruction from the Almighty it comes. This verse is really, uh, really profound. It says two things. First, this national catastrophe has come from the hand of God. Again, plague of locusts, last time that happened in biblical history, was uh, to Egypt. God sent it. Here it's to God's people. Um, but notice what it says. The day of the Lord is near and it's coming. 
actually this plague of locusts is just a preview. It's just a pregame show, an appetizer for what is coming. It points to something future. And that future day is described in chapter 2. Uh, the day of the Lord is coming. Uh, this is verse 2, chapter 2, verse 2. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. You get a picture of uh, God's presence on Sinai, people trembling, of the end of the world type stuff you see in Revelation. But uh, chapter 2, verses 2 to 10, describe the army that is coming. Again, we start with locusts, we end with an army. And this army is very powerful and very big. I'll, I'll quickly go through this, but in verse 2, they, their blackness spread upon the mountains. In verse 3, uh, before them, the land looks like the Garden of Eden. It's nice and perfect. After them, it's just desolate. There's nothing left. Uh, verses 6 to 9 describe how they are a good army. They, they can jump over walls. Oh, my goodness. They're like, they're like the, the Avengers, okay? And they're coming, all right? It's not good news for the army to be the Avengers if they're coming to your city, right? Verse 10 points even further, I think, from this army. The earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. It sounds a lot like the book of Revelation when Jesus returns. But notice in verse 11, who is at the head of this army coming to destroy God's people? The Lord utters his voice before his army. So as bad as it would be, um, to have a foreign army come and destroy your land, as awful as that has been in history and would be if it happened to us. Um, we have to connect the dots in the scriptures. This day, you notice how a locust plague points to something worse? Right? You'll see that? It's a sign of something to come. Well, what, what's described here is a sign of something to come. This just happened in my quiet time this morning with 2 Thessalonians 1. Just hear this. 2 Thessalonians 1, this is verse, I think, uh, 10 to 12. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on, on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. That day is coming. The day of the Lord is coming upon the earth. Just read the scriptures. You can't escape it. But so far in Joel, what we've seen is that lowercase j judgment days, these days when really terrible things happen, experiencing really terrible things, uh, national and personal disasters, among the other things they do, one thing they do is they point us to judgment day. What Joel wants us to do is see a Category 5 hurricane and evacuate, okay, if it's coming towards you, right? Duh. But to also see there's a day coming when the whole world will be swept away. That's what's here in chapter 1 and 2. This is a difficult text. It's not the kind of view of national disaster that gets you a lot of likes and nice comments on your Facebook post. Okay? Uh, and I'll add that Joel 1 and 2 does not give us the full picture of why bad things happen. For example, talk about how God made a world without locusts. He made a world without armies. Right? Adam and Eve blew it. Right? The reason there's evil at all is because mankind has sinned. Okay? Um, it doesn't also touch on the fact that... Uh, Disaster is not always connected to personal sin. Jesus says that in John 6, right? But this passage does teach us that behind every disaster, whether personal or national, is a, is a warning of future disaster meant to be taken seriously. Now, there are a couple of objections to this that I just want, maybe questions you're asking that I want to address real quick. 
first, you might be thinking, isn't this just an Old Testament thing? Like, wasn't this just when God had his own people and he would speak to them in a certain way? Right. Hasn't it changed since Jesus? Uh, Luke 13 is, uh, helps answer this question. Uh, in Luke 13, some people come to Jesus and they tell him this really sad story about some Galileans who were in the temple offering sacrifices and this wicked, terrible ruler named Herod murdered them in the middle of them offering sacrifices. So they come to him and tell him about this. And uh, apparently they phrased it in a way that was like, God would not let this happen to good people, right? This had to, they had to be really bad for this to happen to them. Right, Jesus? Like, confirm my assumptions here. And here is the response of Christ. Here's what he says. Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he goes on and, and tells a story that's more like a national disaster. A tower falls on people. He says, do you think they were worse sinners? No, they weren't. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. It sounds a lot like Joel. He doesn't say, these poor innocent people, I can't believe God let that happen to them. He doesn't say they deserved it. He says, no, no, neither of those things, right? We don't know why particular things happen to particular people. But he does say, it's a warning. They are miniature, lowercase j, judgment days. Jesus is willing to be friend who gives us faithful wounds. He's willing to wound in order to heal. He's willing to speak to us even in a threatening tone. He's the one saying, I am the one ultimately, big picture, okay? I don't cause evil, but I'm behind it for your good warning you. So, it's not just an Old Testament thing. Second thing, maybe the more difficult question, is God fair and just and good to do this? Is it okay for God to use things like locust plagues to tell us about sin, or hurricanes, or, or diseases, right? Is it okay for him to do that? Let me give you an example, okay? Let's say uh, I am, we, I played in the street with my kids yesterday. I was with them, so it's not, I'm not a terrible parent, right? Okay, but we have, we have this rule. You do not go into the street without daddy. You don't do it. And uh, I can sit and tell Nora, I can explain it to her, try to reason with her, okay? Um, doesn't work, obviously, right? But if she, if she hears me, and she disobeys me, and she runs into the street, once I catch her and calm down, is it wrong of me to give her a good, solid spanking? No. Am I an evil, abusive father? I'm not. Even if it's a good spanking, right? right? I'm not. That is a good thing for me to do. Having the pain of a spanking is much better than getting hit by a car, right? And it's much better than learning that disobedience is okay. If my daughter grows up to learn that disobedience is okay, she can never walk with God, right? And if that's okay, then surely our Father in Heaven who loves you guys way more than I love my kid, who has a heart full of mercy to you, surely it's okay for him to speak to us in difficult ways. If it's okay for us to experience the good things, the pleasures of God through the world he created, surely it's okay for him to speak to us about future judgment and to speak seriously to us about our sins through the hard things. And finally, you might ask the question, why should I respond to every disaster with repentance if they're not connected to my particular sins? That's a tough connection to make. Maybe a better way to put this is, do you really expect me to respond with repentance every time something bad happens? That's a little crazy, Leland, all right? Um, I'll I, I answer your question with a couple questions. First, is there still sin in your life? Yes, okay, if you are a Christian, you admit that. Second, if you continue in your sins and do not repent, 
Will you go to heaven? Answer that question, probably not. Unrepentant sin destroys. If you're living in unrepentant sin, even the little ones, right? I'm not talking about the big stuff that, that gets on billboards, right? The little stuff. You live in those, you don't put them to death, you get casual about them, you treat them as your little pets, you, you defend yourself against, against them, right? But in any case, you don't know Jesus, you don't have the spirit in you. So, every time something bad happens, whether it's to us, in the world, we have this opportunity to freshen our relationship with the Lord, to come to him again in faith and repentance, to see the sign he puts before us, to say, man, I, I want to be fresh and right for that day that's coming. So uh, this passage calls us to connect the dots, to recognize the connection God wants us to make. One of the connections, not the only one, one of the connections God wants us to make between the evil things that happen in the world and our personal need for repentance. He intends for them to be signposts. Someone or you wake up with a cold or with a horrible sickness. All right? God wants you first, okay? Pray for this, pray, pray for to get better, okay? Seek to make it better, right? Respond with compassion. But then to say, hey, listen, sickness is going to take all of us eventually. And there's a sickness that's worse than death. And if I'm not healed of that, right? God wants us to make those connections. He wants, he wants to speak to us through those things. So, this morning, there are some sins that you are sluggish about, you've been toying with, you've got some really great justifications for, that you just kind of treat casually. God loves you enough to sternly speak, to threaten, so that you can walk in repentance. And if your repentance is fresh, if you feel like you have been keeping short accounts with God, you've experienced it today or this week, I'd encourage you to love and labor for those people in your life who are not repentant. Don't you know that everybody that you know is going to live forever, and those of them who know Jesus, they're going to live forever without him. They're going to live forever in, it, in it, the kind of pain that you cannot fathom. And God's called you. He's put, you, put them in your life so that you can reach out with compassion. Listen, if you care more about the people who are starving in India, right, and the people who are spiritually starving in the cubicle across from yours, then you don't get what Christian compassion is, okay? Christian compassion is primarily, of course, to alleviate po- poverty in India, right? But it's primarily focused on spiritual needs. Reach out to those people at whatever it costs you. And finally, just uh, maybe change your tone when you speak about bad things that happen in the world. Refuse to be the Christian who says, God just took a break when the hurricane hit, right? I'm not saying we speak harshly about these things, but refuse to be the person who seems to think that God is only good when great and nice things are happening. Okay, uh, so just summarize judgment days, national and personal disasters point us to judgment day, and when we experience them or see them, God is speaking to us through them, and he is saying, you need to repent. You need to keep your repentance fresh if you are a Christian. You need to repent for the first time if you're not. And uh, you might be wondering, well, what does that repentance look like? The rest of Joel fleshes that out. Um, This past Thursday, we wrapped up our series on what is the gospel and connect. And uh, we talked about how we respond to the gospel. And I said that 
uh, I'm teaching this book by Greg Gilbert. It's really good. But he says that you respond to Jesus through faith, which is relying on him to save you, relying on his work to save you, and repentance, which is turning from sin, switching sides against sin, hating it, resolving to put it to death. And again, that all sounds great, but what does it actually look like? This passage gives us a picture. It gives us a picture of what it looks like to turn away from sin. First, uh, you turn to God. Look at, uh, look at verse 12. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me. So repentance is not just taking some behaviors and heart issues and putting them to death. It is returning to God. You were made for God. You were, you were made to live with your whole life in reference to him. You were made to live in rich relationship with him. Repentance always involves turning to a person, not to a lifestyle, not to a moral code, right? Not to a set of beliefs, but to a person. You turn to God. You embrace him as your Lord. Notice um, how this passage just sings with the glory and mercy of God. Look at verse 12. Return to me, or sorry, this is uh, verse 13. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful. He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Notice, even though he wounds, even though he warns, his heart is full of mercy. At his heart, he is gracious. He loves to receive sinners. He loves to forgive. He loves to relent over disaster. That's his heart. Steadfast love comes out of God like water comes out of a well. He loves it. And uh, just notice, verse 12 begins with yet even now. Guys, the army is on its way. It's gotten so bad that a plague of locusts wasn't enough. The army's on its way. They're still not listening. It's days, maybe months away. And even then, he's willing to receive them. Think about that. Think about the patience and the kindness of God. There are people that are days from eternal death. And he is willing, even after lives that have resisted him, to receive them if they will just repent. And you need more assurance that uh, there's this question, right? When you really see your sin, there's a question, how can God, how can, how can I know God will receive me? How, do I, how, how can I be sure? We've already seen that Jesus is the returning judge, but I think here in this description of God's character, we see him as the merciful Savior. Why can God receive us when we repent? Because all the judgment in Joel 1 and 2, all of it has been poured upon Christ. He's paid for it. Jesus, in his mercy towards you and his love for you and his desire for your good, he paid this price for you. And now he stands ready and willing to receive you whenever, however you come. First Peter says that, that Jesus suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Jesus is the assurance, the guarantee that if you return to God, he will receive you. The turning towards God, it's relational. Second, it's wholehearted. Return to me with all of your heart. In the Bible, the heart is the center of your will, uh, intellect, emotions. There's no head-heart divide in the scriptures. They're all together. Who you are is your heart. And uh, so this describes a 
wholehearted turning to God. Many a college pastor has described uh, pie chart Christianity. Your life's a circle, okay? And you divide up into little pies. All right, here's my church life. Here's my Jesus life. Here's uh, my work life. Here's my relationship life. Here's my entertainment life. Whatever, okay? All right? That is how many people live their lives. They compartmentalize things. They come here, they do these things, and they live their lives. And there's no, there's really, it's not that they're just evil, but there's not a lot of reference to what God desires and commands in all the spheres of life. And this passage says, uh, wholehearted returning to God looks like placing the entirety of your life into the Jesus pie, or whatever you want to say. Putting the Jesus pie in the middle. Whatever you want to describe it. Okay? It's every aspect of your life. Holding nothing back. And if, if Jesus wants to jack up your work life by calling you to share the gospel with your coworkers, then you embrace that. If he wants to jack up your relationship life by telling you, you got to break up with this guy he's not godly, embrace that. If he's calling you to jack up your entertainment life, things you watch, the way you spend your time. Embrace it. That's what, that's what wholehearted repentance looks like. All of my life. Um, so it's turning to God. It's wholehearted. And it is felt. Look at uh, verse 13. Rend your hearts and not your garments. Rending your garments would be tearing them. So this is, uh, you see this in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus confesses that he is the son of God and the high priest who's so angry about it tears his garments. Um, and uh, it's a great way to act like you're repenting to tear your garments. And Joel says, don't just tear your garments, tear your heart. Experience grief over your sins. Mourn over them. Um, there's, there's not, now I know some of you might say, well, I'm not really an emotional person. And I get that some of us, we have different makeups, right? I get that. But there's not a place for saying, I don't really do emotions in the Christian life. This passage calls you to mourn and grieve for your sins. Now, I want to uh, just be, be clear here. There's a difference between living in guilt, okay, and grieving over sin, right? Uh, guilt looks at yourself. It says, oh, my gosh, I can't believe I did this. It wallows over what you've done. It repeats over and it plays the video in your head. It condemns yourself. Okay, that's not, that's not godly grief. This passage does not encourage you to live in guilt. Godly grief is looking at your sin for exactly what it is, okay, being cut to the heart about it, and then taking up the grace of God for cleansing and for putting it to death. Godly grief is grief with vengeance, okay? It experiences the grace of Jesus as it grieves over sin, and then it puts sin to death. So, um, don't think this passage encourages you to wallow in your guilt. In fact, I would say wallowing in guilt actually refuses the grace of God. You can repent of wallowing in your guilt. Uh, and so finally, you got repentance Godward, turns toward God. It's heartfelt. It's wholehearted. And finally, it results in concrete actions. Just notice, very quickly, there are six different calls for corporate repentance. Uh, in verse chapter 1, verse 14, and in chapter 2, verse 15 and 16, there's a call to consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, gather, consecrate the congregation. The idea is that though repentance is primarily here, it always shows here. There are actions, concrete, tangible actions with repentance. Maybe a way to ask the question is, are you, really, if, if you're, are you serious enough about your sin to fast for a whole day in repentance? Are you serious enough to confess the worst of it? to another believer in person. Um, 
Okay, so we've seen a, a, a picture of what genuine, heartfelt, concrete, biblical repentance is. But right now, um, many of us might be experiencing a great temptation, primarily because we are in the West and we're Americans. And that is to walk out of this room saying, hmm, that was interesting. Or, wow, Joel 1 and 2 is tough. Or, I didn't know God spoke to us soon after that. that, that, that okay, I'll, I'll, I'll chew on that. Or, man, why did we even pick this one? You know? Uh, and that's a very intellectual response to the scriptures. It's gaining some new knowledge, right? We're very tempted for him to think, think today's a success. We've heard this if we understand it. And of course, understanding is great. This passage and every passage of scripture calls us to act. If you walk out of this room with some new facts in your head, but no turning from actual sin in your life, you have not heard a word of it. This passage calls you and I to see our sin, to ask God to reveal it, and to act against it. Especially as we live on the edge of eternity. Um, this Thursday, uh, I attended a funeral of a man who was only 15 years older than me. Uh, he was a, I knew him decently well. He was a dad in uh, the middle school ministry back when I was doing that. And uh, he died suddenly without warning. Uh, I mean, I seen him at the gym pumping iron, bigger weights than me, which if, if that's possible, okay? He was a godly guy, uh, good dad, good father, and just like that. You know? And uh, Buster began his funeral by reading a text, and it says, uh, it's Ecclesiastes 7.2, it says, it is better to go to the house of mourning than the house of feasting. In other words, funerals are better than festivals or game nights or spike ball picnics or downtown tours or March Madness. Funerals are better for you. And uh, as I sat there on Thursday, and I was kind of chewing on Joel, thinking about that, uh, that text was really brought, a lot, brought alive to me. Because um, it just hits home when a guy whose kids aren't even out of, mid- aren't even out of high school yet dies that you knew. I'll be 44 before I blink, you know? Like, I'm gonna blink and be 44. And I was just sitting there, I was thinking, man, you know, we live our entire lives just, you guys ever been on a balance beam? We live our entire lives just walking on the edge of a cliff. And one day, oftentimes, without any warning, we will be gone into eternity. No more appearances, no more dressing up on Sundays, no more excuses, no more justifications for your life. Just you before the Lord Jesus, that risen and reigning Lord. He loves you enough. He has enough of a heart for your good to warn you, to give you opportunities in your daily life as you experience life, to keep your walk with him fresh. To experience, either we sin or when bad things happen, to experience what it looks like to, again, place your faith in Jesus, to rely upon him to save you, to turn from the sin in your heart. He wants your walk with him to be so confident, so close, so full, that you can honestly say with Paul, Philippians 1, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He wants that kind of confidence for you. And just like the faithful friend of Proverbs 27, he is willing to wound in order to heal. So, as the book of James says, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you Lord, uh, I, I do just I just ask that you would help us not 
to merely respond intellectually uh, to this passage. Uh, it is such a grave temptation for us. Um, I just confess that many times I've responded with my mind to your words. I just pray uh, that you would uh, enable us uh, today to identify and to hate and turn away from specific sins in our lives. Please give us the grace of that, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.